You turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of Hebrews 9 this morning. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. And while you're turning there, I wonder if anyone recognizes what song these, these lyrics go with. And now, the end is near. And so, I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it. My way. My way, the song made famous by Frank Sinatra. The lyrics were written by Paul Anka in 1968 and put to the tune of a French pop song. And in telling the story of when he wrote those lyrics for Sinatra, Paul Anka said, I read a lot of periodicals and I noticed everything was my this, and my that. We were the me generation. And Frank became the guy for me to use to say that. Listen to the last verse of that song. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. If the 1970s was the me generation, what did that generation raise their children to be? And in the year 2022, we're entering the time to discover what their grandchildren will be. This morning, we're going to be confronted with the topic of worship in Scripture. And I think Sinatra's famous song is informative as we think about worship today. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Let's pray together once more. Father, we want to be those who worship in spirit and in truth. 
We want to be conformed to the image of your Son. And so we ask that you would illumine our lives, give us eyes to see through the eyes of our hearts this morning that by your Spirit we would be changed by your word. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, we find a recorded sermon that's written to a group of persecuted and suffering Christians that is calling them to faithfulness by describing Jesus Christ and his majestic glory. And recently in chapter 7, we saw how Jesus belongs to a greater priesthood. In chapter 8, see that Jesus inaugurates a new and better covenant compared to the covenant we find in the Old Testament. And as we begin chapter 9 here, the author turns his attention to the fact that Jesus provides a greater sacrifice. And to introduce this, he draws our attention back to the Old Testament, and he brings up the tabernacle, this tent that God instructed Moses to build for the purpose of, of worship. He brings up the topic of worship as he brings up the topic of sacrifice. So this morning, we're going to focus on worship in the Old Covenant, so that Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll be in an even better position to consider Christ and how he is superior and worship in the new covenant. So as we look at worship in the old covenant, uh, although we no longer have a tabernacle and a lampstand and uh, golden altars of incense, uh, there are principles that can still inform how we think about worship today. And so this morning, following where the author of Hebrews directs our attention, we're going to look at uh, first the tent And then the first room of the tent, and then the third room of the tent, before drawing out some implications for worship to to conclude. So first, the author of Hebrews draws our attention to a tent. Look at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. We know that the first covenant here is referring to the covenant that God made with his people uh, Israel at Mount Sinai after being rescued miraculously from Egypt. Uh, this covenant, which, uh, which is an agreement that, that defines and supports this relationship between God and his people, uh, it's described in Hebrews 8.13, just above, as, as a covenant growing old and becoming obsolete. And it's replaced by a new and better covenant between God and his people that's inaugurated by, by Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but even this earlier Old Testament covenant had regulations for worship, it says. So worship matters today, but worship mattered back then as well. And as we begin chapter 9, we see that there's a direct link between this tent, this tabernacle, and worship. The tent in in verse 1 is to be an earthly place of holiness. It could be translated an earthly sanctuary. So what do we call rooms like we're in, like the room we're in right now? 
We call it a sanctuary, right? What, what, what is this room designated for? For worship. So the topic of worship, the, uh, these, words, these words correspond, right? This, in one sense, we call this a sanctuary. In a sense, we call that because this is a holy place for worship. Or what we gather here to do is engage in the holy act of worship. So the topic of worship is introduced here as the topic of the, uh, of the, of the tabernacle is, is introduced. And, and when we consider this tent, this earthly place of holiness as it's described in the text, for worship, uh, picture what it would have been like, what it would have been like to approach this place. Let's, let's walk through this place together and ask what implications it has for worship today. Although this tent is part of the first covenant, the old covenant, it can still help us understand today who God is, who we are, and, and, and implications for worship. And then next week, we'll spend more time considering how who Christ is informs our worship today as well. But as we approach this tent, we notice three things. We notice the court, we notice an altar, and we notice a a basin. Now, those three things are not mentioned by the author of Hebrews in the text this morning, so we're not going to spend much time here, but but let's get a full picture of what this this place of worship looked like. Uh, this, This tent was in the context or was sitting in a camp. So we start in a huge camp. Uh, imagine a, over a million people camping together in the wilderness. The 12 tribes of Israel. You had 12, three tribes that camped to the south, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the north, tr- three tribes to the south. And in the middle was this tent. And in between the tent or the tabernacle and the, and the people camping was, was uh, three of the clans, uh, the three clans of the tribe of Levi, who were designated for the special purpose of serving the tabernacle. And so even those were broken into three different groups where you had uh, the Kohathites on the south side, you had the Gershonites on the west side, the Merarites on the north side, and then you had Moses and Aaron on the east side. The entrance to the tent, entrance to the tabernacle, was always to face east, and so Moses and Aaron, they're always on the east side. They're always there, according to Numbers 3:38, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of, of Israel. Why does the tent always face east? Why does it always face east? Well, in what direction were Adam and Eve banished out of the Garden of Eden? They were sent out of God's presence, but in in what direction? On what side of the garden did God place a cherubim guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, guarding the way to the tree of life? It was the east side, and that's why the tabernacle always faces east. Adam and Eve were sent away from God's presence. The tabernacle is, in a sense, an invitation back in to God's presence. And as we approach the tabernacle for the purposes of worship, we are approaching the presence of God. But before we can enter the tabernacle, we have to enter, we have to enter the tabernacle court. And, and, and what the court is, it would have been rectangular in shape. 
created this kind of perimeter around the, the tabernacle that's, again, separated where the people are camping from, uh, from what takes place in accordance with the, with the tent. And as you enter the court, the first thing that you encounter is a big bronze altar. This altar was, uh, was squared, been seven, about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. It was uh, about four and a half feet high. It had horns sticking out of the corners. I had a metal grate in the middle, and the purpose of it is for burning sacrifices. So at the, at the bronze altar, we have a bloody place. This is a dirty place. This is the place where blood is shed because of the sins of the people. And as we continue forward between the altar and the tent, we have a, a bronze basin. We don't have as much detail about the bronze basin, uh, we know it's basically a big bronze bowl that holds water, and its purpose was to be a place for where the priests would come, they would wash their hands and their feet before they would go into the tabernacle. So we've entered the camp, we've entered the court of the tabernacle from the east, we've passed by the bronze altar for sacrifices, we've passed by the bronze basin for washing, and, and something to notice before we go any further as we travel further in, holiness is increasing. Exclusiveness, uniqueness, separateness, distinction is increasing. Outside the camp, anyone can be. Any, everyone else lives outside the camp. Outside the camp, you be and do what you want, so to speak. Uh, that's the place of un uncleanness. That's the place of darkness. Inside the camp... Uh, is supposed to be God's holy people, people set aside for God. And, and, and in the camp, you're allowed to live, but you're, but you're allowed to live according to God's commands once you enter the camp, right? In the interior of the camp, that now you have the Levites. And the Levites are allowed to live there, but they have, it ramps up just a little bit, and they need to live in accordance with God's commands also, but then they're designated to serve the tabernacle. And then you enter the tabernacle court, and things start getting even tighter, even getting more specific. In the tabernacle court, no one lives in the tabernacle court. There's no one tenting there. In the tabernacle court, uh, only a subset of the Levites, right? And the Levites are a subset of the people of Israel. So the subset of the subset is allowed in the tabernacle court, or at least they're, they function there regularly. And there, they're only allowed to do what well, looks like two things, which is the work of sacrifice and then the work of just washing themselves before entering, before entering the tent. So as we enter the tent, just, just note now, the tent's made up of two rooms. The first room would have been rectangular in shape. It's about 30 feet wide by 15 feet deep and 15 feet tall. It's called the holy place. The second room though, is cubed shape, about 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, called the most holy place. So, so we're moving, secondly, into this first room. And, and as we enter the tabernacle and the first room, we notice three things in the room. Look at verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy 
place. The first thing we notice in the holy place is the, is the lampstand. The lampstand is made of, of pure gold. Uh, it's shaped like a tree. It has a base. It has a stem or a, a trunk. Uh, it has six branches that go up, and then on top of the trunk, and then on top of the six branches are a total of seven cups, and they're shaped like almond blossoms. Uh, and in those cups are placed lamps, and that lamps are to give light in the tabernacle. So from a purely functional standpoint, uh, the, the lamp is for giving light. Outside of the tent, uh, there's light. But once you enter into the tent without the lampstand, it's dark. Uh, this isn't the kind of tent you go and buy at Walmart or the sporting goods store that's made of nylon, right? Uh, this tent is, is it's made of thick heavy, well, I guess there's three layers to it. The outside layer is made of thick, heavy ram skin. Uh, the second layer is made of, uh, it's, it's like a curtain of goat's hair. And then the third interior layer is, is made of fine, twisted linen. So between all those layers, once you, ins- once you enter into this thing, it's, it's dark without some kind of light. And, and the significance of, of light and worship, the connection between light and worship uh, is, uh, is not a hard connection to make as we read through Scripture. The, God, the Bible begins with God creating light in the beginning. The Scriptures are described as uh, God's light. His Word is His light to us. Jesus describes Himself as the, the light of the world. Light is regularly contrasted with darkness. Uh, most importantly, for what we're considering this morning and in the book of Revelation, uh, there are two things that are not in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no temple or tabernacle. It says, because the Lord is the temple. And similarly, there is no sun, because the glory of the Lord is its light. We could spend a whole morning drawing connections here, but for our purposes this morning, let's, let's just say this, light is necessary for worship. Light is necessary for light's necessary in order for us to see, and this is both in a physical and a spiritual sense in Scripture. Light throughout Scripture is described as coming from God and from God's Word. And in order to worship, then we need light. And the lampstand creates physical light, uh, but it points to the fact that we need spiritual light. Light. David writes in Psalm 36, 9, In your light do we see light. Without the lampstand, worship in the tabernacle cannot take place. Uh, it can also be no accident that this lampstand is shaped like a tree. Right After we've entered the tabernacle from the east, after being banished from God's presence, after we enter God, start to enter God's presence from the east... Where the cherubim were to cut us off from the tree of life, now as we're drawing near to God's presence again, entering from the east, one of the few items we find here is, is a tree. So there's signals here to the Garden of Eden, to the presence of God, to heaven on earth. The next thing we see in this room, this, in the holy place, illuminated by the light of the lampstand, is, is the table. Table's overlaid with pure gold. It's about three feet wide by a foot and a half deep. Uh, it's only about two feet off 
the ground, a little over two feet off off the ground. There's not much to it. It's, it's described as having a rim around it, probably just to hold, keep things that are on it from, from falling off. If you read the description of it in Exodus 25, uh, it may have held the plates and, and dishes and bowls for the uh, incense offerings and the drink offerings. Uh, but the thing that gets most attention on the table is the bread. Uh, it's called the bread of the presence, or sometimes it's referred to as the show bread. Uh, they were instructed to take 12 loaves from fine flour and to bake them, or to bake 12 loaves from fine flour each week. And then every Sabbath day, Aaron, or the high priest, was to, to take the loaves into the holy place and arrange them on the table before the Lord on behalf of the people. Uh, And this was to be a food offering. When we make offerings to God, we give things that are valuable to us. God doesn't need anything. So when we offer him things, we offer him things that demonstrate that uh, he is valuable. And so we do this by offering things that we find valuable. And so food is valuable, uh, particularly in uh, the wilderness of the ancient Near East. So they were to offer these 12 loaves. Aaron was to put them in two piles, six in each pile, and then he was to sprinkle frankincense on them, or sprinkle or pour. He was, he was to put frankincense on each pile of bread. Uh, and later, probably the following Sabbath, but, but sometime later after it had been offered to God on behalf of the people, Aaron and his sons were to eat the bread. And they were, it says they were to eat it in a holy place. So these 12 loaves obviously represent the 12 tribes of Israel. This this bread represented all God's people offered to God. And then the priests representing God's people, they they eat the holy bread later in the presence of God representing the people. So we've entered the court. We've passed by the bronze altar. We've passed by the bronze basin. We've entered into the first room, the holy place, We've taken inventory of the lampstand and the table and the bread. We're ready to move forward third and finally to the most holy place, or what's also called the holy of holies. The priests enter the first room at least twice a day, so they're in there regularly. The second room, though, is only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement by only one person, the high priest. Look at Hebrews 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. Behind the second curtain was a section, second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were, or above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And he doesn't give much detail here. Although it's not mentioned here either, we know that there is a thin veil that separates these two rooms. God instructs Moses in Exodus 26:31, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. So all that separates these two rooms, 
the room where they're allowed to enter twice a day, or at least twice a day, and then the room where they're not allowed to enter ever, except once a year. The only thing that separates those rooms is this thin veil. And then what do we see on the veil? Cherubim. So this is being described in the book of Exodus. When's the last time we see cherubim? As we're reading Exodus, well, the last time we saw cherubim is the first time cherubim appear in the Bible in Genesis 3, guarding the way to the tree of life and God's presence in Eden. And here they appear again, still guarding the way in. Their message is not a comforting message. The message of the cherubim to fallen sinners is do not enter. You are not welcome here. Once again, as we enter this dark room, there are three things to notice in this second cube-shaped room. The golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat. The altar of incense was another square-shaped item about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. It's uh, about three feet tall. It's also overlaid with pure gold. Getting used to that now. We're finding gold items in the, inside the tent. We had bronze items outside the tent. And then the first thing to acknowledge here is something that's slightly awkward in, the tent, or in, in this text. The, the author of Hebrews, who obviously knows uh, the details of the tabernacle, who's, who's very familiar with these with these things. He's very familiar with the Old Testament. He describes the altar of incense as being in the second room in verse 4. But the descriptions in the Old Testament of the altar of incense seem to locate it in the first room just before the veil. So there's multiple attempts to explain the discrepancy here. Most Biblical scholars seem to agree that the author here is intentionally speaking in this way because of the close association of the incense with the most holy place. Uh, this, this incense altar functioned, it is, it, this was a platform on which uh, you, would, you would burn incense. Uh, and so the incense would have created a smell, obviously, but, but, but more significantly it would have created smoke. And the smoke would have added to the darkness of, of the tent. The smoke would have drifted through the veil into the, into the second room, kind of shielding it in, uh, visibly, at least, to some degree, even more besides the darkness that was already there. And the priests were to burn incense twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. And then there was also a special call to burn incense on that special day of atonement as well before entering the Holy of Holies. And the, and, and the smoke would have made that room hazy. It would, have been, it, would have, it would have gone through the veil. It would have made that hazy and even harder to see however God might be presenting himself or manifesting himself in that room. So although the incense altar likely stood in the first room just before the veil, the incense and smoke uh, was more for the second room. What else is going on here with, with the incense? The the incense is symbolic for prayer. Now, there's a connection in Scripture between prayer and, and incense. So 400 years after the tabernacle is built, King David writes in Psalm 141 too, 
Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Or we think of in the book of Revelation, where we have the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders holding in their hands a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Or a few chapters later in Revelation 8, where there's an, there's an angel who is given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. And, and it says, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So the priest does all that he does on behalf of the people. And the idea is that the priest burns incense to the Lord on behalf of the people and then prays to God on behalf of the people, lifting up their needs and their requests to him. And the smoke that goes up through the veil into the holy of holies is a symbol of God receiving the prayers of his people through the mediation of this priest. We're just rejoicing that, that, that uh, the mercy seat is open still as we bring our own requests to God. Which leads to the next thing we see in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is between three and a half and four feet wide. It's a little over two feet deep and a little over two feet high. It's the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It's overlaid with pure gold, both on the outside and on the inside. Uh, the ark, just as a piece of religious furniture, uh, was, was not unprecedented in the ancient world. Uh, the, the Israelites were not the only group of people that had something like this. What's surprising and unique about the Israelites is what's inside the ark. Uh, it was common for, for pagan nations to, to make images of their god or their gods and, and, and give them to them in order to honor them in some way. And then they would take those images and they would put them in a, in a sacred box or their, their, their ark. But of course, anything like that is forbidden in Israel. The third commandment clearly forbids any making of, of any carved image or any likeness of God. So, so so what goes into the ark of the God of Israel? What makes them different? Well, in, instead of images that they have made to honor and give to their God, in this ark, in the ark of the covenant, this has items that remind people of the things God has given to them. The golden urn of holding the manna, or it's a jar of manna, uh, Aaron's staff that budded the tablets of the covenant. What do these things signify? The, the, the manna was a, was a sign of God's provision that God had provided for them in the wilderness. Miraculously, he kept them alive for, for years by providing this bread-like food from, from heaven. Aaron's staff that budded uh, with almond blossoms, it recalls the uh, events we read about in Numbers 16 and 17. Uh, Moses and, and Aaron's exclusive roles that they had were challenged by some of the people. <clears throat> and when one of the results of them being challenged was that uh, they took 12 staffs, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and they put those 12 staffs in the tabernacle overnight. And then when Moses goes in in the morning, one of the 12 
staffs, Aaron's staff, had sprouted buds and blossoms and ripe almonds, it says. So it's a sign of God's authority. It's a sign of God's decree. God, not the people, chooses who shall serve him and how they shall serve him. How we serve God is up to his plans and his ideas, not our plans and our ideas. And finally, the tablets of the covenant, or covenant these, these, are the, these are the Ten Commandments. And uh, this is how the ark gets its name, the ark of the covenant. Ten Commandments representing the covenant. While the, the, the manna and, the, uh, and Aaron's staff come along later, from the very beginning, the tablets are placed in the ark, and they signify God's terms, his commands, his promises. One thing to note about this, this is significance of the ark. Uh, the Bible describes God as infinite, right? He, he is all-powerful. He exists beyond space and time. He exists in all places. So in other words, we might say he is boundless. And this is why he tells the Israelites when, to, what the name they should refer to him as, as is, is Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. Even a name is too limiting to God because of the infinite nature of, of who he is. And yet, as, as Daniel Hyde puts it, in an act of merciful condescension, what God is doing through with the ark, and in an act of merciful condescension, the boundless God binds himself to a box. In a sense, he, he's present outside the tabernacle. He's just as present outside the tabernacle as he is inside the tabernacle, but, but he manifests his presence in a particular place for the sake of these limited creaturely people, just as he did in the Eden. So through the tabernacle, the ark specifically, God is, God is opening up access to his presence once again. Granted, it's in a limited way. We're not quite in Eden here, but for the first time drastically different in thousands, thousands of years. God's opening up access to himself. The third and final thing we notice in the second room in the Holy of Holies is the mercy seat. The mercy seat is essentially, it's essentially a covering for the ark. On top of it, though, are two cherubim. So if the ark is communicating God drawing near to us, the cherubim, once again, are communicating, don't come too close. Do not enter, they say. You are not welcome here, they say. And, and above the mercy seat, God, God sits, so, so to speak. Uh, the, the mercy seat is, is, is like a footstool for his transcendent feet. God describes it himself uh, in Exodus 25, 21, he tells Moses, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So part of worship is God speaking. The mercy seat also points to 
something else very significant to us. The word translated mercy seat here means, means the place of expiation or the place of propitiation, which just means that this is the place where sins are taken away and put on something else, or sins are taken away and put on someone else. The same word occurs in Romans 3, 25, where there it's translated, not mercy seat, it's translated propitiation. Listen to Romans 3, beginning verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Everyone here this morning has fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are entitled to his gifts, to his goodness, to his grace. We, we, we think we are. We tend to think we are and operate like we are entitled to it, but we are not entitled to it. We are creatures who will not kneel. We are creatures who want it my way. And the sad reality is that in our sin, the message of the cherubim still applies. Do not enter. You are not welcome here. And yet there is a way that we can be forgiven and made right and be welcomed because of the one sinless man who ever lived. There is redemption in Christ Jesus because God put him forward as the one to absorb the just consequences for our sin before a holy, all-powerful God. And as we'll see next week, Jesus stood at the mercy seat and offered himself for sinners. So if you are feeling guilty this morning, if you have fallen short of the glory of God, if you are not the son or the daughter that you're supposed to be, if you have not been the husband or wife that you're supposed to be, if you have not been the father or mother you're supposed to be, if you haven't been the neighbor that you're supposed to be, and most importantly, if you have not been the creature created in the image of God that you are supposed to be, there is good news. Forgiveness and mercy and life are promised to all those who receive Christ Jesus by faith. So turn away from your sin and put your hope and your trust in Christ. We've traveled through the court of the tabernacle. We've traveled into the holy place, further into the most holy place. This, this sequence and this, this context is the center of old covenant worship. And there's more to say, and we'll say more next week. But what can we say about worship in light of the tabernacle? What can we say about worship this morning? Seven implications, briefly. First of all, worship, worship follows deliverance. Worship follows salvation. God doesn't give the Israelites the, the tabernacle, and promise to rescue them once they get going with the sacrifices and the incense uh, and, and, and the day of atonement and everything. No, no, God delivers them first. He delivers them first, but then he saves them for something. 
He saves them for his own purposes. He saves them for worship. Worship follows salvation. That is the purpose for our existence, Christian. Worship. Secondly, worship is is expressive, but worship is also formative. Right now, obviously, we express our love and gratitude to God and our praises to Him in worship. Worship is expressive, but worship is also formative. God's worship is something God uses to form us into something. Uh, is it weird to you that the author of, of Hebrews calls the tabernacle or, or discusses the tabernacle as this place of, of worship? When we look at this and we ask, where do the people express themselves? Where, where do they demonstrate their individuality? The tabernacle shows us that's, that's not what it's all about. Worship, when it, is, when it is regulated by God in his word, is also formative. It makes us into something. It's designed to form us into something. If worship is only you expressing and not you being formed, then ultimately it's worship being formed by you. And if worship is something that ultimately is something that you form from inside yourself, that has a big problem based on the third implication this morning. God cares about how he is worshipped. God has something to say about how we worship him. The author of Hebrews points out that there were regulations for worship in the Old Covenant. And then repeatedly throughout the book of Exodus, describing the tabernacle, God says things like, in Exodus 25, 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You shall make it exactly as I show you. God is not indifferent about how he is worshipped, but this flies in the face of our modern individualistic expressionism or expressive individualism today. Do we even think today to ask ourselves, how does God want us to worship him? Does it even matter? Uh, is, is anything fair and up for grabs? You know, just as long as our hearts are, are good. We do well to remember, worship is God's idea. It's designed by God, and we are saved in order that we would worship Him. Fourth, worship is individual, but worship is also corporate. Most people don't have much struggle with individual worship today in the day of expressive individualism. I worship God my way, on my own, according to my own heart. As we reflect on the tabernacle worship, though, we're struck by the fact that almost none of it is individual. It takes place in the context of and for the sake of a collective group of people, people of Israel. Now, individual worship is a real thing in, that we can identify in Scripture, but, but what about corporate worship, collective worship? Is that something God cares about? Is that part of his design? Good, good Protestants know that going to church doesn't save you. We're not saved by our attendance at church gatherings. We're saved by Christ and Christ alone. But is God's word indifferent about gathering with the saints for corporate worship? 
There's a lot we could say there, but in short answer, uh, God designed it. It's important. In fact, it's critical. Corp- worship or worship is, is, is individual. It's also corporate. Five, worship is, is outwardly directed, not inwardly directed. Outwardly directed, not inwardly directed. Our goal or focus in worship should not be primarily inward. What am I doing? How am I feeling? What am I getting out of this? Our goal or our focus in worship is directed toward, toward God. Uh, the tabernacle demonstrates for us that worship is about drawing near to God. He is our focus. He is our goal. Worship is directed toward God. Six, worship is active, not passive. Now, now we, we said that, or I said that worship is, is formative. It's something that forms us, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's something we engage in, in passively. Worship is not an activity that we, we mainly come and just receive. Uh, worship is something that we do. We, 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 we work. It's, it's interesting, the word that's translated worship here also means serve. There's an active role in it. And tabernacle worship definitely required action. Everyone had a role to play, particularly the priest. I mean, the priest clearly had this most, uh, most labor-intensive role in tabernacle worship. But if you're thinking, well, I'm not an Old Testament priest, well, once we move to the New Testament, we find Peter saying things like, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Things change with the coming of, of Christ. And one of the things that changes from tabernacle worship to new covenant worship is the priesthood. And in a sense, we all have a priestly role now. And, and in worship, that means we all have an active role, not a passive one. We, we serve God even as we are formed by God, even as we praise God. Worship is not active, or it's not passive, it is it is active. And seventh, finally, worship is about worship is about God. That seems so obvious. Worship is about God. But if you want to know how fallen and twisted we are in our sin, consider this. We so often make worship about ourselves. My preferences, my opinions, my feelings, my sense of fulfillment and what I get out of it, the tabernacle demonstrates the God-centered nature of, of worship. He is the goal and the prize. Everything points to him. From, from the court, through past the altar and the basin, into the tent, to the first room, past the lampstand and the table and the bread, into the second room, past the incense altar, up to the ark, and to the mercy seat, everything is directed toward him. And if you don't want God, you don't want worship. And yet the tabernacle shows us that as a result of all this, it's all about him, but as a result, he gives us himself. Again, he is the prize at the end. How did Frank Sinatra end his song? For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, 
than he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. May that never be true of us. He who keeps his life will lose it. He who loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. God offers us himself in worship. He saves us for worship. So may we humble ourselves and kneel joyfully and acknowledge, I lived and worshiped and served my way, but now I want your way. Let's pray.